but they go further and further and further into economic slavery. Populism. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Long a force in American history. Whose property has been confiscated in its entirety and whose altars in Christ have been desecrated. The dictionary defines populism as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people. When the concerns of foreigners take precedence over the needs of Americans, our government is betraying us and has become illegitimate. Who feel that their concerns are disregarded. We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. <laughs> President Obama, are you listening? Who feel they're ignored by established elite groups. When left-wing populism, it goes to the economic elites. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street. Wall Street. When we talk about wealth distribution, oh my goodness, can't talk about that. In cultural populism, it goes toward minorities. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Populism is also... To be closer to the people or closer to the popular will. The forgotten men and women of our country. So many of you felt like you've just simply been forgotten. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Welcome to an On Point special series, The Power of Populism. Because populism unifies the people by negativity. Its global reach. Its authoritarian danger. I am your voice. And its democratic promise. Populism is what we desperately need, what we have to have, and what we can't have. Episode 4, Flipping the Script on the Urban-Rural Divide. So you just heard the dictionary definition of populism, a political approach that appeals to people who feel that their concerns have been disregarded and ignored by the elite. Well, often, that sense of diminishment is most sharply expressed along the urban-rural divide. And in our previous episode about the politics of resentment, we heard from Wisconsin political scientist Kathy Kramer. She described how rural communities feel disempowered in her state. In these smaller places, rural communities, people were basically saying, we do not get our fair share. You city people who make all the decisions, you don't know us, you don't understand what our lives are like and the challenges that we face, and you think we're all racist and sexist and backward and uneducated. We see ourselves as good, hardworking Americans, and we're not getting what we deserve. So this rural-urban version of the real people versus the elite has been repeated so often in American politics that it's almost never questioned anymore. After all, when we think about who the quote-unquote elite are, we automatically presume that we're talking about the financial or academic elite, people who do have enormous economic and cultural power. And the financial elite also exercise considerable political power in this country via their wealth. So all that is true. But today, I want to challenge that assumption. 
I want to challenge the notion that the quote-unquote elite must be defined so narrowly by just those two poles, financial and academic. The, quote, city people who make all the decisions, according to the rural consciousness that Kathy Kramer just described. So here's the hypothesis that I'm going to offer you today. There is another crucially important kind of power in the United States right now. It is the power to elect presidents and the power to shape national policy, to shape the judiciary, to shape federal spending. It's a kind of power that has an impact on every single American. I'm talking about electoral power. And given how the American system of governance works today, it's rural Americans who are the powerful electoral elite. And it's ordinary urban Americans whose needs and concerns may have been disregarded and ignored. So what do you think of that? Let's vigorously test that hypothesis today. Jonathan Roden, what do you think? Should our conception of the elite be expanded to include the electoral elite, as I've described? Well, that's not the way I've typically thought about it, but it, but I think uh, we'll probably end up getting somewhere near the same place. I think getting to this focus on legislatures and the executive and trying to understand who actually is in power, who makes decisions, who appoints judges, uh, this is this is something that um, you know we can we can identify, we can analyze, and uh, there are lots of things built into the system that generate uh, significant power for rural areas. Uh, even just thinking back to in, in your introduction, thinking back to Wisconsin and the, the case that uh, Kathy is talking about, uh, it, it this is a place where the Wisconsin legislature has been controlled by the Republican Party, which is an overwhelmingly rural party. Uh, for for some time, so it's it's hard to see the you know the the Madison elites as uh, as really misguiding policies away from rural Wisconsin in a setting where the the, the party of rural Wisconsin has really had significant power, uh, unbroken power for some time. Yeah, so this is exactly why I'm thrilled that you could join us today, uh, Professor Roden, because we want to sort of get a new understanding or perhaps a new perspective on the urban-rural divide in this country. And, and I should say that Jonathan Roden is a professor of political science at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also author of, the, of a a book titled Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. Um, so in the book, you actually suggest that the major axis of conflict uh, in American politics right now isn't necessarily left versus right, but rural versus urban. Tease that apart for me because I feel like um, rural versus urban is that the overlap between that and left versus right is actually pretty strong. So I don't really understand how you make the difference between the two. Yeah, in a sense, they've they've come to 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 be one and the same over time. The way we understand left and right uh, is essentially a bundle of issues. Uh, you know, there are economic issues, social issues, issues related to immigration and race that are all bundled together in these packages that we refer to as left and right. And what I argue is that over time, the way these things have been bundled, you know, there's really there's really no necessary reason why um, why these why these different bundles of of ideas have to go together, and some of them really don't go very well together intellectually, but they've been packaged together by the parties in a certain way that over the years it's been 
urban voters who have uh, pushed the Democratic Party to adopt a set of of, of uh, policies and, and platforms and values that have been driven by urban interests. And the same thing is true of the Republican Party with rural areas. And so as new issues have been added to the to the political process, uh, as they've been activated over time, the Republicans have become more and more rural and the Democrats have become more and more urban. And that that doesn't have to be the case. There are other countries where such a thing has not happened. I see. And it hasn't always been the case in the United States, or has it? I mean, how far back would you go uh, uh, in U.S. history to see the beginnings of this rural-urban divide? Yeah, we can go all the way back and, and think about the rise and fall of, of urban and rural uh, uh, you know, divides going back to the to the beginning. But but I I look at this as some sometime around the beginning of the 20th century, just to get the, a sense of the roots of the current situation. And it was the case in lots of states that uh, the Democrats were a bit more uh, successful in in rural areas up until around 1928. This is when L. Smith got the Democratic nomination. So this is an urban Catholic from New York who gets the Democratic nomination. And we all of a sudden see a correlation between Democratic voting and uh, population density emerge in 1928. And then after that, you know, soon after that, we have the New Deal and the, this alliance that the Democratic Party makes with labor unions in cities. Uh, and then that's the point at which the, the the connection between urban places and the Democratic Party really takes off. And we see it then uh, at first in the Northeast, in the kind of core manufacturing area where there were lots of factories and labor unions early in the 20th century. Uh, and then the, the rest of the country slowly starts to catch up. And it's a really slow process. But but really, the, you can see in the data, the correlation between density and voting really starts to uh, take off and increase with every election starting sometime around the Reagan era. Uh, in the in the 80s, it really kind of takes off. In every election, we see it become uh, more intense. And we also see that this thing that's been around, this thing that's been happening in the Northeast and Massachusetts and, and uh, you know, ever since Mayor Curley and back in the in the machine days in, in Massachusetts, this thing that's been around since the machine politics days in New York, that kind of relationship starts to emerge even in the Mountain West. You know, even Boise is, starts to become politically different from the rest of Idaho. Uh, you know, we we even see it in uh, a difference between Salt Lake City and the rest of Utah eventually. Uh, and then, of course, it happens in the Deep South as well, where there was once uh, the opposite correlation. The Democrats were more powerful in rural areas. But then part of this alignment, realignment of the South uh, in recent decades has slowly created the same pattern so that now this kind of correlation between democratic voting and density is the same everywhere uh it's converged so every yeah. place looks more or less like 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 boston and or or, or new york and uh and it's it's really a, one of the most uh, polarized uh, urban rural kind of divides in the world mm. well i mean i would say that in the south i mean that was we can particularly trace that back right to the to the southern strategy following the the passage of the the civil rights act of 1964 i mean that one was that sort of realignment couldn't you say was very strongly based in the issue of race in america Yes, for, uh, certainly. Um, but there's even more to the to the Southern realignment. There's been a lot of work recently trying to understand the impact of globalization and the impact of NAFTA in particular. Uh, and you know, if if we look at the look at the success of rural Southern Democrats, uh, it's not like they suddenly just 
kind of fell off the map uh, in the 60s with the civil rights movement, the Democrats have controlled some Southern state legislatures until relatively recently. Oh, so some recent work has been looking at the role of NAFTA and uh, the uh, kind of textile manufacturing okay. that was once in the South, but then moved and for which yeah. uh, Clinton and the Democrats were, were blamed. Well, Professor Roden, stand by here for just a second. We have a lot more to talk about, about different ways of viewing the rural-urban divide. It's episode four of our special series, The Power of Populism. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and it's episode four of our special series, The Power of Populism. And today we are seeing if we could flip the script on our typical conception of the urban-rural divide in this country. And Jonathan Roden joins us. He's author of Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. And Professor Roden, um, I just want to make note for a moment about something you said earlier, that uh, it was the industrialization of cities, I presume, not just in the United States, even perhaps in uh, um European countries that led to the uh, a kind of strong the beginnings of this realignment that you were talking about between um, Democrats and, and Republicans in the country, and that's really fascinating to me because it's yet another example of something we don't talk about that much about how maybe technological revolutions, um, and in this case the industrial revolution, end up shaping um, you know a, a society. They end up shaping politics. I mean, have we have we seen this same realignment post-industrial revolution in other countries? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this really, the whole, you know, you asked earlier about uh, left and right versus urban and rural. And these, you know, these two really started to become fused as a result of the industrial revolution, where there's a great concentration of economic activity in cities uh, in the era of manufacturing. And then that led to labor unions and their supporters, which then created social democratic and workers' parties, which we refer to as the left. You know, that's the conception of the left that we really kind of start with. And uh, right with then we can think about changes, you know, technological changes that lead to a different type of industrial revolution in which now so much of prosperity is based on the knowledge economy and investments in a very different type of production, which uh, is heavily favored. In um, it, it's also very concentrated in urban areas, uh, but in a very different way. So now manufacturing in the United States has moved from the urban core to exurbs and rural areas along interstates, whereas it used to be in the urban core on rail corridors. 
And so now many of those old industrial cities have become knowledge economy hubs like Boston and San Francisco and cities like that, where there's a tremendous concentration of activity in uh, in the what we call the knowledge economy. And, uh, and then those groups have somehow uh, attached themselves to the parties that we ref still refer to as the left that came from the industrial era, uh, the social democrats in many European countries and the democrats in the U.S., uh, these parties then kind of surprisingly or incongruously in some ways uh, become the champions of the the new urban concentrated uh, activity, which is which is uh, knowledge economy employment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as you described, um, we have uh, this bifurcation essentially. Uh, this rural-urban bifurcation that in the United States starts mapping with um, uh, Democrats and, and Republicans. Uh, Democrats emerging as being stronger in the cities, Republicans um, as being stronger in rural areas. But then you also said that that, that, that divide grows further w as new issues in American life come up and get folded into the political system. I mean, what issues are you talking about? Socioeconomic, civil rights, and, and how— how does that work? Yeah, so this whole thing starts with class and labor unions and all of that, but that can't be the explanation for this big increase in the urban-rural divide since the 80s, because if anything, the class divide has become less powerful. And if we look at just income and, and voting behavior, income is really not a good predictor of voting behavior at all anymore, especially among whites. Uh, Lower-income folks are more likely to vote for Republicans. So uh, as the class divide has has uh, become less important, some other things have come along. And one of them you already uh, mentioned, the civil rights movement and race was uh, an important part of the story, but also a, a class of issues that, that followed from the women's movement in the 60s and 70s. And this has happened in lots of other countries, a growing salience of issues like uh, abortion uh, and issues related to gender. And then in more recent years, uh, the rise of issues like immigration and then related to the conversation we were just having about uh, economic change, uh, some issues related to free trade very recently. Mm -hmm. Now, our news analyst Jack Beatty calls this what you're talking about, a social, socially reactionary populism. What do you think about that? There's some, you know, there's some truth to this. Uh, you know, there is a there's a kind of a, a correlation between population density and conservative views on on social issues and in some ways a lot of the transformations that are taking place have been taking place for a long time in cities uh, and so there's a lot of a lot of social change that's happening very rapidly in urban areas uh, and it all seems very foreign to people in rural areas and this is true in Hungary and Poland and and true in Western Europe and and certainly true in the United States. So there is a, a kind of a reaction to big changes that have happened in the in the world, but mostly happening in cities since uh, since the the sixties and seventies. Hmm. Okay, so let's drill down a little bit and help me understand more about how this then translates into um, politics and political power in particular. And um, let's let's choose a specific example that I think. Uh, you're quite familiar with, and that's in um, maybe some of the industrial cities of Pennsylvania? Yes. So tell me a little so, bit more. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, starting with the starting with the Industrial Revolution, even before all the rise of all these other social issues we're, we've been talking about, the Democrats started to become highly concentrated in the urban areas. I mean, not just Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. But also in a in a ring of smaller industrial towns outside of uh, in, in eastern Pennsylvania that kind of link together 
uh, mines uh, and rail hubs uh, that feed into this Philadelphia uh, rail network. And uh, so smaller cities like Lancaster and Allentown and so forth and Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, and these places became very strong. Uh, I mean, actually, in the in the early part of the century, some of them had uh, strong socialist movements and had socialist mayors. Uh, but then eventually the Democrats kind of steal the, the thunder of the socialists and these become uh, democratic, core democratic areas. Uh, and so over time, we see that Democrats become very concentrated in these urban areas. And so the way we choose our legislatures in the U.S. is by drawing small single member districts uh, with only one representative. And so these winner take all districts end up in urban Pennsylvania uh, with uh, with Democratic candidates winning uh, with 80 percent of the vote. And there just aren't so many places in rural Pennsylvania where Republican candidates win by nearly such large uh, majorities uh, historically. And so this leads to uh, a concentration of support for Democrats in cities that is inefficient when they're trying to trans translate their, their support into seats in the legislature. So that Democrats end up with a, a seat share in the legislature that's significantly below their vote share. And this has been true ever since the 1940s. Huh. So is this one of the reasons why... Um... Uh, you point to this this notion that that quote unquote cities are losing, right? I mean, if you think about the conversation we've been having, cities are winning uh, in economics uh, with the rise of the knowledge economy, and they're winning in in some respects in terms of a you know what you might think of as uh, the cultural moment. But when it comes to political power, uh, the parties have emerged in ways that are highly uh, associated with urban and rural residents. And the party of rural residents has a, a distinct advantage in several different respects. So one is just in these winner-take-all legislatures. Uh, another that people are even more familiar with is the Senate, which, of course, overrepresents represents uh, rural areas pretty substantially. Uh, and then for a time, at least at the moment, the Electoral College. So this brings us back to my hypothesis about the electoral elite being rural Americans. It sounds like here's some data that would support that hypothesis. Yeah, I guess it all depends on how we define elite. Uh, you know, I, I think that in some ways, elite are just a, it's maybe just a stand in for for uh, uh, other other people who disagree with us. Let's just re you know refer to them as the elite. Uh, and so if uh, if, um, you know, for for urban residents who feel uh, underrepresented, say, in a state like Texas, um, yeah, I mean, whether they want to think of the, the the Texas legislature dominated by rural interests as elites, I suppose that is a, a, a way of thinking that probably does does uh, occur to people in in uh, Austin or Dallas. Okay, so so I, I yeah, I, I take your point about uh, perhaps not getting too hung up on the word elite because earlier you said power, and perhaps that's yeah. the that's that's the better way of describing this. In fact, I think it's a better way of describing. Um, uh, the forces that feed into uh, into populism as a whole, different versions of power and people who feel like those who are exercising that power aren't representing their interests. So with that in mind, do you think that urban Americans um, are mistaken or not in perhaps feeling some resentment uh, uh, about the uh, the political power that perhaps rural residents, hold if they're able to, you know, um, control state legislatures like you were talking about? Yeah, it's a really good question, this idea of, well, what is the nature of urban resentment toward uh, rural areas? Because uh, we've done, you know, people like Kathy have done a lot of research on this notion of rural resentment. It's a really, and people have taken her work and they've tried to 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 apply it in, in surveys and ask 
questions of people to understand what is the nature of resentment of rural Americans towards urban areas. We haven't done nearly as much research to ask the opposite question. Uh, and so I, but the what little research I have seen suggests that the level of resentment expressed by urban Americans toward rural Americans is not as strong as the resentment of uh, of rural folks toward urban folks. Well, perhaps it's expressed uh, in a different way, right? Because perhaps it's not expressed as resentment towards those folks, but resentment mm-hmm. about the system that's created this lopsided uh, distribution of electoral power. Because you can, you'd often hear people in in, in voters, in particular in urban areas uh, and blue cities, saying, "Well, why do, why should I even bother to vote? Because my vote won't count. No matter how I vote, it doesn't matter. It won't have an effect." on the presidential election. It won't change um, necessarily. Well, maybe Senate races are a different story. But there's this sense that it's a futile action because no matter what they do, it won't matter. So maybe not resentment towards people, but resentment towards the system. Yeah, there's certainly a, a rise in that in that type of feeling uh, toward, you know, toward the parties and toward the system. And, uh, and it's something that um, it's something that is I think you're right that it's it's going to be greater in some areas than others. There are still some places where urban voters uh, can can be pivotal. You know, in a in a really tight statewide race in a place like Georgia, uh, you know, turnout among urban voters is 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 quite crucial for the Democratic Party, and it can put them over the top as it has recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in lots of lots of places, that's right. I think there's a feeling of of hopelessness, and there's a growing you know interest in among some progressive circles in reform uh, and, and trying to do something uh, to to change the system and, uh, and, and make it make it less uh, make it less asymmetric. Okay, so let's give me a more a clear um, definition so that I don't lead us astray about exactly what you think cities are losing, right? Because I feel like I've been actually talking a little bit too much in, a, in, a, in abstraction. So first of all, are cities losing and what do you think ex- they are losing? Yeah, what I mean by that is really just the the looking at the parties that represent cities and whether they and how how their votes trans, translate into seats, uh, how much of the time do they control government, and then whether they get the things they want in the policy process. And uh, what one thing we can see is that in the countries like the United States, so that also includes Great Britain and Canada and Australia, where these really these are just the places that were colonized by Great Britain. So places that have these winner-take-all single single-member districts uh, really have some a different profile of policies than countries like continental Europe that use proportional representation. A lot of the policies are much more friendly to uh, urban areas in continental Europe. So that's one way of thinking about this in terms of policy. When it comes to just just power, it's also the case that uh, that the parties of the left, uh, so the Labour Party in Britain, has been in power for much less of the post-war period than the than the Conservatives. Although, even though in the if you aggregate up their vote shares, they're actually pretty similar over time. Okay. Uh, it suddenly occurs to me that perhaps I'm falling into the same trap that I was trying to get us out of at the beginning of this show about seeing the sort of axis of uh, axis of American life as defined by two poles, rural and urban. I mean, I think we should talk a little bit about how this plays in suburban America, because a huge number of Americans, that's where they live. That's their environment. That's their communities. I mean, does the same divide play out in suburban America? 
Yeah, that's right. We're increasingly a suburban country and, and, uh, and you know, rural America is shrinking. And for that matter, so is the, the urban cores of big cities are shrinking and more and more of us are moving to these sprawling suburban areas like those areas around Phoenix and Houston and Dallas and Orlando. Uh, that's really where things are going. And these are, in fact, the, the, the pivotal areas that determine the, the makeup of the legislature. So it, it's so one of the things that becomes interesting, then the parties have to be extremely heterogeneous uh, in order to win the legislature. You have to win these competitive suburban districts. But then you also have to uh, deal with your uh, more extremist uh, urban representatives in the case of the Democrats or your more extremist rural representatives in the case of the Republicans. And managing that internal party divide is a big part of what has become so difficult and so nasty about U.S. politics. Well, I mean, in a sense, so that's the, that's the dream of some people who want to drain to drain the extremism out of politics, that the idea is that in more heterogeneous heterogeneous, excuse me, uh, locations, that uh, policies would be forced closer to the center. But I mean, is that actually happening if we take into account um, sort of the, the fact that um, things have been pulled so far to the extremes? What is the center anymore? Well, there are uh, Americans really, uh, by and large, typically describe themselves as centrists. And uh, we've had a little bit of an uptick over time in people who describe themselves in surveys as having more extreme views, but not it's not really that uh, large. Most people are still seeing themselves as somewhere in the middle. And we still have lots of electoral districts where most of the people uh, are describing themselves as centrists. And so, uh, and we also have lots of representatives trying to represent these places uh, who are frustrated by the extremists uh, from the very rural or very urban districts who are making their lives so difficult. But one of the problems they face is the is the intense focus of the media on the extremist. Uh, so if you just look at the coverage of people in Congress, there's very little coverage, very little interviews, very few news stories about people from these uh, moderate suburban districts. All the talk uh, uh, on the uh, about the left is about AOC and the squad and very urban representatives. And all the attention currently uh, of, of to the Republican Party is going to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that from very more rural districts. Point taken. Um, but you could also make the argument that uh, the Republican Party as a whole has moved so far to the right that, I mean, even if we didn't pay attention to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that w- there would be plenty of other um, elected Republicans, especially in Washington right now, who subscribe to those more extreme views. That's that's I think that's absolutely true. Um, but there are still lots of uh, there's still lots of folks who you know Republicans who need to win in suburban districts. Uh, where people are not impressed by this type of rhetoric, and uh, and those those uh, representatives really are trying to to they're really hoping that they can dis- dis- distinguish themselves from from that, and that's mm. what they've been trying to do with some success, uh, but um, it's not clear how long that will last. Well, when we talk, come back, we're going to talk about maybe how to uh, move forward from this urban rural. Divide. Jonathan Roden, hang on here for just a minute. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? 
I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode four of our special series, The Power of Populism. And we're taking a look at the possibility of flipping the script on the rural-urban divide in this country. And I'm joined today by Jonathan Roden. He's a professor of political science at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. I'd like to introduce into the conversation now Danielle Allen. She's a professor at Harvard University and director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. Professor Allen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Magna. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Okay, so first of all, I want to give you a chance to uh, shoot down my hypothesis that I offered at the beginning of the show. Um, I'll take out the word elite and replace it with the word power. Um, Do you think that in this country it's possible to look at um, political power as being disproportionately disproportionately uh, offered to uh, rural Americans versus urban Americans? And do urban Americans have uh, have a reason to feel a little resentful about that? Well, first of all, Megna, let me just thank you for digging into the topic of our broad shared frustrations with the health of our democracy right now. I think a lot of people feel frustrated, whether urban or rural. So it's good to have the chance to sort of try to think that through. And in short, yes, I think you're right that it is important to see that there is a strong weighting towards rural voters in our present system, both in Congress um, and the Senate. um, And then, of course, that flows through to the Electoral College. So there's a lot to be said for your hypothesis. I appreciate your shifting from the word elite to the word power, because I do think that when we're talking about urban um, and rural, we do see, as Professor Roden said, a real economic predominance uh, for those urban and exurban areas um, Mm -hmm. over rural areas. In that regard, it makes sense, honestly, that rural communities would exercise their power to try to fight back against that. Mm, okay. So, but then if if we're still nevertheless diagnosing a kind of pro- a problem here, what would be a potential remedy? Because I want to just take a second to acknowledge that in earlier episodes, we definitely took a look at um, populism as has been expressed, particularly in the 20th century, as having a potential tilt towards authoritarianism uh, and um, anti-democratic systems of governance. And I don't want to necessarily forget that. But if we're talking about a form of pop of populism here in the United States where urban residents may feel that their needs are being ignored or, or haven't met, what would be a potential remedy for that, Professor Allen? Well, I mean, you've, you've put your finger on it that 
political institutions have the job in a healthy democracy of finding the cleavages and tension points and conflicts in a society and providing a deliberative structure that permits their resolution. You never achieve a once and for all resolution. There's always winners and losers in every policy configuration. So the competition, the contest, the arguments are perpetual. But the goal is to move out of the worst tension points and conflicts into new configurations that bring good things to people. So that's all very abstract. Our institutions are clearly not delivering that way right now. And to some extent, that is a problem with the institutions themselves. We have made some mistakes with regard to the structure of our institutions that mean they can no longer operate in that sort of synthesizing and solution-finding way. From my point of view, one of the biggest problems is the fact that 100 years ago, we capped the size of the House of Representatives. So the national legislature, which really is meant to be the voice of the whole people, and in that regard always has a sort of populist element in it, um, has over time shifted to disproportionately weight the voices and votes of people in rural communities. And in contrast, you know, the idea originally was that the Congress, the House of Representatives, should always grow. It should change in its composition as the demography of the country changed. But in the last 100 years, seats have been regularly reallocated from the more densely populated areas to less densely populated places. Mm. Um, you know, so that that is a really important point. We need to increase the size of the House. Um, that would give, uh, you know, rebalance representation. That would flow through to the Electoral College as well and reduce the protective weighting in favor of rural areas. Okay. Professor Roden, let me turn back to you on this for a second, because I think um, in, in your scholarship, um, you, you talk about um, perhaps proportional representation being um, something we should think even more about. Do I have that right? Well, it's a comparison that I yeah. make with uh, okay. with other countries sure. to, that have not had the same kind of development of this urban-rural polarization, and that don't, of course, don't have the same sort of disproportionality. But as a you know, as a realistic re- reform proposal, in the United States, uh, it, you know, am I am I optimistic this is something that can happen in the next ten years? And I think the answer would be no. I think something that uh, Danielle is proposing is a lot more realistic. Okay, so then let, but in order to help us understand what you specifically mean by proportional representation, that doesn't lead you down the path to optimism. How how are you defining it? In the yeah, you know, go ahead. At the extreme case would be someplace like the Netherlands, where there's just one big district, and the uh, and the seats in the legislature are allocated according to uh, by party according to, and there's a party list, uh, and then the, the 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 seats are allocated according to the share of the votes that the party receives. So there's no disproportionality in the end, uh, and, uh, and it leads to a, a multi-party system. I see. Okay. So, so in, and this is, so this would nationally, I mean, again, theoretically, how would that work here in the United States? Oh, right. In the U.S., it would probably work something like uh, with the states as units of analysis. There's a such thing as a mixed system, which is what Germany and the Netherlands, I mean, the Germany and uh, uh, New Zealand use, uh, where there's still winner-take-all districts and part of the legislature. This actually could be combined with the notion that we should increase the size of the legislature. You could have some share, some existing number of seats that uh, states currently have but then add some number of seats per state uh, that would be uh, allocated according to proportional representation. And so some people view that as kind of having the best of both worlds by having some proportionality, but also the kind of local uh, representation that comes from having a districted system. Okay. So again, theoretically, um, I suppose this would have a, a this 
system would have quite a large impact uh, on the Senate, right? Because if I understand correctly, right now, uh, Democrats actually have to win a lot more votes uh, to uh, to put their senators in office than than Republicans do, even though we have that fifth, you know, that really fifty, roughly fifty fifty split in the Senate. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about what Danielle thinks what should be yeah. done about the Senate. That is, uh, you know, that's an issue where no matter how we choose, whether it's proportionality or, or winner take all, as long as we have two seats for South Dakota uh, and two seats for California, the problem that you're identifying is going to be there. Okay, Professor Allen, you want to jump in here? Sure. Well, I mean, it's important that we see that our system is a set of interacting parts. So there's a lot of attention on the Senate right now and a lot of frustration there, which is understandable for sure, both both because of the overweighting of less populous parts of the country and because of the filibuster, frankly, which blocks the entire legislative system from functioning. So the question of what to do about the Senate, I think, actually depends on what we do with other parts of the system. The original conception, as you all know, is that this was a sort of federation of states and we had a compromise where states needed protection as such. And so two votes per state in the Senate and then the population needed protection as such and therefore proportionality uh, in Congress and the House of Representatives through that increasing um, size over time. I actually am a person who thinks that we do still need an element which is about state by state mm. um, protection. So in that regard, I am not um, a, a current advocate for reforming the two um, seat allocation per state for the Senate. That said, the entire system would have a different kind of dynamism in it um, if Congress were bigger if that flowed through to the Electoral College, and so we had fairer outcomes um, out of presidential elections. And then with those two elements, if we put pressure um, on the Senate to get rid of the filibuster, um, then if we got rid of the filibuster, the House would have power again. Right now, the House doesn't have power because of the Senate filibuster. So in addition to increasing the size of the House, we have to get rid of the filibuster to put the Senate back in its proper sort of more constricted um, sphere of power. Okay. I, I want listeners to know that not only is Professor Al and um, uh, a profound expert on the current state of uh, American governance, but she's also one of the nation's like four preeminent scholars on uh, our founding documents and our founding philosophies. And, and I wanted to mention that because I was interested to hear what you had to say about the Senate, because I was thinking back to um, uh, de Tocqueville, right, in his discussion, in his writings about uh, the the protecting against the tyranny of the majority. And that, um, I mean, he was an observer of America, but that the idea that um, checking the excesses of unbridled majority rule has been a part of um, sort of how this nation has thought about its governance from the beginning. Yes. I mean, that really comes to a core point. So first of all, there's just the kind of question of what is the definition of democracy Lots of people start by thinking the definition of democracy is majority rule, but that can't be quite right because we do know that you can have majorities that just do terrible things to minorities in a given political system. So true democracy is about equal empowerment of all citizens for free and equal self-governing processes. That equal empowerment of all citizens requires protection of minorities as well as taking majority rule as one of the most important tools in the toolkit. So it's really a question of how do you balance majority rule with appropriate minority protection. So to some meaningful degree, smaller states are a certain kind of minority who need a certain kind of protection. But you can't overweight that protection to the degree that it undermines 
undermines completely the principle of majority rule. That's the situation we currently have. So coming back to the Senate again, for instance, the, the, the strongest allies for getting rid of the Senate filibuster are members of the House of Representatives. They know they cannot do their job right now because of the Senate filibuster. So really, we the people have to really activate Congress and activate our electoral system collectively to go at that Senate filibuster so that we can get the legislative process operative again and, you know, again, rebalance that allocation of power between the House and the Senate. Mm. Well, Professor Roden, I want to turn back to, um, you know, what you've written extensively about, about the urban-rural divide and how we might apply the things that Professor Allen is talking about when it comes to you know, to take the the phrase from your book, why cities lose. Now, until we can get more seats in the House or until we can get the Senate to, we wouldn't even need to make procedural changes. Even just a cultural change in the Senate might relax the power of the filibuster a little bit. Um, I want to be more optimistic than I am about those things happening. Um, uh, this leaves the question of if cities want to lose less, to put it bluntly, what are their other options? What are the Democratic Party's other options since they find their power base there? Well, you know, is there a gap between what the Democratic Party stands for, what their what their um, their candidates stand for, and the you know the needs of of the rural voters? Can that gap be closed? Should it? Is there another way of rebalancing the power? Yeah, right. So I guess there are several different ways to think about answering your question. Uh, I mean, the, some of them suggested in the comments you just made is that, so, you know, is there something the Democratic Party can do to to kind of bridge the divide and, and become more competitive in rural areas? And there's been a lot of thinking about that. And there's certainly people within the Democratic Party who have ideas about that and people who have been somewhat more successful in, uh, in those places. And, and part of what they've tried to do is kind of playing from a very old playbook in the Democratic Party, which is to try to be different things to different people in different places. Uh, and the Democrats have done that for a long time, but it becomes much harder in a nationalized media environment that we're currently in. So that's, you know, but there are still versions of that strategy that the Democratic Party can pursue. Uh, but some of the other, uh, some of the other ways the Democratic Party can try to solve its geography problem short of proportional representation or really major changes to the constitution uh, are things like redistricting reform. It's something we, we haven't really talked about gerrymandering or mm -hmm. uh, redistricting, but this is part of the equation. And it is possible in some cases, if you have a redistricting process that attempts, that actually explicitly focuses on partisan fairness, uh, this is something that the Michigan uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission, that the changes to the Constitution in Michigan actually require efforts to achieve partisan fairness in the drawing of districts. And the commission took this task seriously and tried to achieve it the last time around in Michigan. And what we saw is a much more competitive set of districts throughout for both Congress and for the uh, for the state legislature in Michigan, much more competitive set of districts. Uh, that led to some very close races and a much more close, a much more proportionate outcome in terms of votes and seats. Hmm. So that's another another possibility, uh, one that's not really possible everywhere, but certainly can be attempted and with with some success. Hmm. Well, Professor Allen, we've got about uh, a minute and a half left here, and I want to give you the the final word. I mean, do you feel? Um, a sense of optimism or possibility that you know, even just taking Democrat or Republican or rural urban out of the equation, that we can take strides forward um, in this country 
to to improve our system of governments so that we get to what you talked about before, the equal empowerment of citizens in this country that would then obviate the need for I mean, any kind of populism. Well, I do actually feel a strong sense of hope about what's possible. I think the thing that gives me the greatest sense of hope right now is what we all watched in Alaska in this past cycle. Alaska introduced a new electoral system in the state called Top Four. Um, No more party primaries. Instead, they have a preliminary election for all comers. Everybody from all the different parties is in the same preliminary. And then they take the top four finalists on to a final general round and then um, have a victor there with uh, instant runoff. And that was both how Lisa Murkowski retained her Senate seat and also how Mary Platola defeated Sarah Palin. So in both cases, the result were elected officials who definitely built coalitions across the whole state and reflected problem-solving orientation. So the fact that Alaska could do it um, is a sign that we can do it if we can change those electoral mechanisms at the state level, get folks who are ready to to build those big coalitions and be problem solvers um, in Congress, then we can get some of these other reforms through as well. Well, Daniel Allen is professor and director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Professor Allen, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Magna. Great to be here. And Jonathan Roden, professor of political science at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and Stanford's Institute for Economic Policy Research and author of Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. Professor Roden, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, that's it for episode four of our special series, The Power of Populism, Its Global Reach, Authoritarian Threat, and Democratic Promise. In our final episode coming up, we're going to talk about, even though we just talked about why populism is the thing that we don't need in America, once again, we'll flip the script and ask, actually, maybe is it the thing that we do need? That'll be in the final episode of our special series, The Power of Populism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.